Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed the perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes! 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 Atlanta Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Left side, Swanson to first. Braves, world champions. Braves in baseball talk, straight from the diamond. And hello and welcome in to From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Grant McCauley with you from the Kia Studios in Midtown at Colony Square where the sun is out, things look bright, and if you're looking for outlooks for the Atlanta Braves, winning a series probably brightened that up as well. They were able to do that in Miami, taking the finale on Sunday. Late-inning heroics against a bullpen that had been almost bulletproof. Well, Ozzie Albies with a cannon shot, three-run homer, put the Braves on top to stay in a 4-2 victory over the Brewers. And just like that, the Braves took two out of three to start their road trip. Now they'll enjoy an off day, head on over to Boston, then try to bring home maybe another series win there, and they'll meet the Brewers again as soon as they get back. And, of course, the trade deadline is right out in front of us. And I say all that to say we've got a lot to get to on today's show, as you might imagine, and we have an awful lot to unpack from the week that was, the week to come for the Braves. And with that trade deadline out ahead of us, there's so much speculation across baseball for what the Braves are looking for, certainly on the home front here, but also maybe one of the biggest stars in all of baseball could be on the move. We're going to get into that a little bit later on the show. As always, make sure you subscribe to From the Diamond wherever you get your podcast. You can also find it on the Odyssey app. And uh, for now, you can find me on Twitter. I am at Grant McCauley. The show is at From the Diamond with an underscore. I haven't rebranded. I'm not sure what's going on with that site. We'll find out, I'm sure, uh, as we continue to careen towards the cliff in which I'm sure there's a, a point of diminishing returns with that social media. But I'll leave all that in the discourse there. You can like the show on Facebook. Just search for From the Diamond. And if you need links to any or all of those things, go ahead and go over to fromthediamond.com. I got you hooked up right there on the top navigation. With all of that said, a good week, a good weekend, I should say, for the Atlanta Braves. But there were these highs and lows that kind of went together. And as soon as you kind of felt like maybe they were getting things on track, well, they were able, they kind of came up short in a couple of games. So maybe I stopped short of calling it a good week, but a productive enough week coming out of the All-Star break that has netted the, the Braves. Get this. Three games in the standings since the All-Star break. And this is a team that, yes, lost a series to the Chicago White Sox, the lowly White Sox, well below 500. that was unable to get back to the, uh, the same winning ways they had against the Diamondbacks in early June. The Diamondbacks returned the favor, taking two out of three from Atlanta. Craziest slugfest game in that. Austin Riley, boy, are we going to talk about him on this show. He has been on one kind of tear that the Braves have very much wanted to see all, all season long. And he picked a great time for it, but... That was another series loss. I went back through the schedule and started looking to see, all right, well, how many series have the Braves lost consecutively? Because, you know, when they went on their run through June uh, and into July, they won, won 11 consecutive series. They were unbeaten in rubber matches on top of that, and that's a good way to win a series is always take the finale. You always take the opener and the finale. You're usually in pretty good shape, depending on what the middle contest looked like. But uh, putting that aside, this was a team that just was not used to losing consecutive series. But over the course of 162, it's going to happen. And when you consider... All of the, the things, especially all the injuries that were just happening one after another after another to this club, you started to wonder, and no pun intended with Arizona taking that series, but with the Braves a little bit snake bit in the injury department. This bullpen was starting to get a little stressed out again. The starting rotation also 
beginning to feel a little bit of a stress, I think, because you know you had a couple of guys looking to have better outings, quite honestly, than they were putting in. I mean, Spencer Strider had been bit by the long ball in what was otherwise a great start for him his last time out, but Bryce Elder, what in the world had gone on with the all-star righty? One of the great stories from the first half, and by the way, still a great story for the Braves in 2023. Could he get himself back on track? Because the last couple of outings, that kind of gave you pause. You started wondering, if Alex Antopoulos is making a shopping list around the trade deadline, what all is going to go on it? And conceivably, how many pieces and how many trades can you pull off in order to meet all of those needs? But as we're not prisoners of the moment, typically on this show, we save that for our social media accounts. You just have to kind of look at the course of this long season and the talent that you do have and the guys that you expect to have back. And I can't say that there's any bigger return ahead for the Braves than that of Max Fried. We're going to update his rehab assignment status and maybe what he's looking for as far as a timetable to rejoin the Braves rotation because I do believe, in addition to whatever happens at the trade deadline, getting Max Fried back in the saddle, back in this rotation, is going to start to put things right and start to put the Braves kind of you know, back to not that they had fallen apart, but it's going to put them back together to more of like, I think the the factory default that they came into the season looking for. You expected Max Fried to lead this rotation. Unfortunately, he has been limited by two stints on the injured list, and you had to kind of wonder with this forearm issue, how long was he going to be out? And the answer is a couple of months plus. And hopefully, uh, he's going to be recharged and ready to help lead the Braves through the second half because they can certainly use a pitcher the caliber of Max Fried to jump back into the starting rotation, but. Uh, then you look at the back-to-back losses of A.J. Minter and Nick Anderson on consecutive days to the injured list. Jesse Chavez remains on the I.L. Dylan Lee remains on the I.L. It's just been tough sledding for this bullpen. I feel like they've been asked to do an awful lot. And we've seen some different guys asked to step up. And I think that's going to continue to be the case, as Alex Antopoulos will, of course, be out there looking for some reinforcements at the trade deadline. And we got to hear a little bit from Alex this week because he was very busy doing one of those patented extensions. But this one, a little bit different than the ones we saw last year. It's not the six, seven, eight, ten 10-year variety, but it was one that I felt was just as essential for the club, for the winning that this Braves team has done, and that's bringing Travis Darno back. He'll be back in 2024, just like his extension a couple of years ago. $8 million salary, $8 million club option, no buyout. And the things that uh, the teammates, the, the coaches, the general manager himself says, about Travis Darno, you understand how important he is to what the Braves have been doing uh, since he joined the club in 2020, most certainly, but the winning that they plan to do in the near future. They wanted Travis Darno to be a part of that, so congrats to him on getting that big contract. But the Braves, they needed to handle business in Milwaukee, and they were able to do that. Bryce Elder was able to bounce back. That was, again, one of the big questions coming into this series finale. You go back-to-back starts, you can't get out of the fourth inning in one and the third inning in the other one, and you're giving up seven runs. And I know the defense didn't help out that much last time out, but Bryce Elder was starting to get hit a little bit more than he had been. And he's a guy that I think relies more so on the defense than, say, Spencer Strider or Charlie Morton, who can miss a lot of bats. That's, that's the thing that they do. Bryce Elder is more of a, a crafty approach. You always hear that it's a crafty lefty. You ever hear about crafty righties? They are out there. And I think Bryce Elder is one of those guys, and he has been. But there were going to be some times, and I felt like he ran into a couple of, of really good bat-to-ball skill lineups in first Tampa Bay and then Arizona that kind of had his number. But you want to see him come out there, regardless of you know the discrepancy between those lineups and this Brewers club that is kind of looking for an offensive spark. Christian Yelich just looked great, but otherwise it's kind of hit or miss, no pun intended. Well, maybe this was just the lineup to help Bryce Elder start to kind of get that confidence back. I know he was talking uh, to Kelly Crawl on the Bally Sports broadcast before the game about you know getting away from you know, this, this, I guess, this mindset. If he was just throwing, he wasn't really pitching. He wasn't really being, I think, is um, dialed in maybe that he needed to be and was just kind of trying to 
rear back and rely on just the the pitchability and not really so much on the strategy. I don't know, but I mean, there's a balance there. You can certainly get the paralysis by analysis that happens to a lot of hitters and pitchers throughout the course of a long season, but good to see Bryce Elder bounce back. And for this Braves offense, again, Austin Riley has been the story of the week, and we're going to talk about him a lot as we go on. But how about Ozzie Albies? He was a guy that was starting to cool off just a little bit. I went back and looked at his numbers over the last three weeks. Ozzie, last 20 games coming into Sunday, batting just over 200. The home runs and the runs batted in had kind of dried up a little bit in the last 10 games. It had gotten a little bit more tough for Mr. Albies. And then the last what, couple of series, he had been relatively quiet. But that's the thing with an offense as sudden as the Atlanta Braves, as potent as the Atlanta Braves, and with as much depth as the Atlanta Braves have. Well, a guy like Ozzie Albies can go a little bit quiet. And if you want an example of that, I mean, Austin Riley's been hitting third for this team for most of the season. And up until he got hot here in the second half, a lot of people have been wondering why. Well, if you got Ron Lacuna Jr. doing his thing, Ozzie had been pretty hot. Matt Olson, Sean Murphy, so on and so forth. You've got the depth in the lineup to kind of cover up. You're not asking one guy to do it. But on the flip side of that coin, I think that at different times of the season, you need different guys to step up. Austin Riley has been one of those guys of late to really step up and offensively help put a charge into this team as they try to sort out, I think, a few things on the mound and maybe a few things defensively too. Let's not let that get lost. There have been some plays that should be made. I think there were some plays that uh, didn't go right in that slugfest victory in which the Braves lost 16-13 to against the Diamondbacks back on the homestand. You know, a lot of people can say, well, don't allow, don't allow 16 runs. That's when he lost. When they scored 13 on that night, that's, that's enough to win any day. Unless you make some errors that lead to five or six runs. And I know they weren't all unearned runs, but you start to go back and recreate those innings. It kind of gave you some questions about the Atlanta defense. I don't feel like it's been quite that porous since then, but there's still been some plays here and there, and hopefully that's something the Braves are going to be able to start to get right in that respect as well. I don't really know if you can go into a defensive slump, but sometimes these things compound and it feels like it's contagious. And let's go ahead and let's uh, take something over the counter, get that all taken care of, and get things cleaned up. But the White Sox taking two out of three from the Braves last weekend. The Diamondbacks, with their series win, gave the Braves the back-to-back series losses that I mentioned are just not something that the Braves had done before this season. Well, they get back in the win column as far as series are concerned by beating the Milwaukee Brewers in two out of three. And really, if you look at all these, I mean, the Braves, there was a game in each of the White Sox and Diamondbacks series where they had a chance to win that and take two out of three in that series. And there was a, a very much a game that was to be had for the Braves on Saturday. The offense just got quiet late, couldn't have the big ninth inning rally, and the Brewers were able to take that middle game. But if you're kind of asking, like, are the Braves broken? Is there something wrong here? Should we be worried? Should we be panicked? Well, I would tell you to look at where they are in the division and that, start working backwards from there. But I would also tell you, it feels like most nights, they're kind of just like a play away. They're just a tick off. And so that, I think, is going to start to course correct itself because the team, especially offensively, is just too talented to go into long, you know, prolonged lulls at the plate. And if they're able to get this pitching staff sorted out, that's going to go a long way toward getting the Braves exactly where they need to be. But this is very much the dog days of summer. I, mean, I don't know if you've been outside lately, but, man, it's hot, it's humid, and every time you turn around, there seems to be some crazy rainstorm that, uh, at least in the Atlanta area, is making itself known. I mean, it has just been one of those weeks, months, whatever you want to call it, where we've just kind of been trying to get through that because you know on the other side of the month of July, and again, obviously the trade deadline's a big mile marker as you get through any season because you just can get excited about the possibilities there, especially if you're a contender. But you also know that the big goals are all out there in front of you. You need to close out this division if you're the Braves. And you want to get into October and make that noise. And I am excited to see what this trade deadline looks like. And I asked a question on Twitter, 
You can check it out at Grant McCauley. How many trades do you expect the Braves to make? I set the over-under at two and a half, and I got a very quick reply from Peter Moylan of Valley Sports. He said, maybe it's not the number of trades, but the number of players that might come back in a trade. So the Braves could find the right partner that could get them two, maybe more, useful pieces for this roster. I mean, Alex Anthopoulos has certainly made his trade, no pun intended, on being able to find the right deals each trade deadline. I mean, he has made this club better. There's never been a resting on your laurels. All right, well, here's a utility infielder. That's the best we could find, so good luck, and you know, we'll see you in October. It just hasn't been that way. And 2021 is obviously the greatest example of that, but even last year, going out and getting reinforcements for the bullpen, trying to get make the outfield a little bit better. And the Braves were having some trouble, and you didn't have full-strength Ronald Acuna Jr., which is basically like inviting Captain Marvel to join the Avengers. Did they need him? Well, yeah, you'll take him, though. You'll certainly take him because he's all powered up, and he's been doing all kinds of things, including leading the league in stolen bases. But I digress, and I'll leave all the, uh, the superhero analogies to the side because I think we've already talked about how great Ronald Acuna Jr. is, regardless of whether he ends up in any multiverse. But uh, as we look ahead to today's show, we got a lot to talk about. Of course, we'll start to unpack what the week that was for the Braves, look ahead to the week that will be for the Braves and the rest of Major League Baseball. But it's Hall of Fame weekend, which to me is one of my favorite weekends every year. And I think it should be a celebration of, of baseball, a celebration of the past, and honoring some of the great players that have come along that obviously deserve a place in Cooperstown. And whether you enjoy the process, the voting, and all that stuff, we'll just leave that aside. But a very worthy class, Fred McGriff, former Atlanta Braves slugger. He was inducted into the Hall of Fame. I love listening to his speech. I'm going to have some cuts from that a little bit later in the show. Just a, an honor well overdue. So congratulations to him also. Third baseman Scott Rowland, a longtime Philadelphia Philly, St. Louis Cardinal primarily. He finds his way into the Hall of Fame. One of the greatest defensive third basemen of this generation, most certainly. Congratulations to both of those men. Ron Gant, though, is going to join me a little bit later in the show. He, of course, is a teammate of Fred McGriff. When there was a little incident that happened in the press box over at Fulton County Stadium, it caught on fire. And when it caught on fire, uh, that was kind of symbolic for what the Braves went on to do in 93. Fred McGriff showed up later that night, hit a key home run, and the Braves were off to the races and beat the Giants to win the West in the last year that the Braves played in the Western Division. So we'll talk to Ron Gant about some of those memories and a really cool bobblehead giveaway that the Braves had a little bit earlier at Truist Park this week. And with the trade deadline about a week away, as I mentioned, we got to get into these Shohei Otani rumors. Will he stay? Will he go? Where will he go? What will it cost? Victor Rojas, longtime voice of the Angels, is going to join me to talk about that a little bit later in the show. So we got lots of stuff to get to, but when we come back, we will dive into more Braves news and headlines for the week that was as we continue on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. I love baseball. Now back to more Grant McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And welcome back in. This is From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. I'm Grant McCauley live from the Kia Studios in Midtown where we Recap the week that was for the Atlanta Braves, and of course, it just capped off with a weekend win and a series against the Milwaukee Brewers. 4-2, the Braves take it on Sunday. Ozzie Albies, one of the heroes with a go-ahead three-run homer to put the Braves on top for good. And great to see that the power just remains an ever-present part of this Braves team. I don't think that's going to be going away anytime soon. As last time I checked, looking up and down that lineup, you have, what, at least half a dozen guys on pace for 30 home runs. You've got one guy, Matt Olson, that's approaching a 50 home run pace. Uh, Austin Riley, by the way, with this little home run binge, he's pushing about a 36-37 home run pace for this year. In addition to that guy, Ronald Acuna Jr., uh, Albies himself, those are 30-plus homer guys. And behind the plate, some really great stuff has been going on with Sean Murphy's career year and, of course, with uh, what Travis Darno is doing. We're going to get to Travis Darno in a minute, but I want to spend a little bit of time on Austin Riley and some of the ridiculousness 
that's been going on uh, since the All-Star break, and particularly in the Arizona series. That's where it really all seemed to just finally get right for Austin. And, you know, I've talked to Austin a couple of times this year in, in which he, it seemed like he was just, you know, searching a little bit at the plate, kind of trying to clean a couple of things up, not looking to overhaul his swing, not looking to change all his mechanics. If you remember the old Cal Ripken days, it seemed like every time Cal went like two for 30 or whatever, he would come in with a whole new batting stance. And it was so much so that I've watched MLB Network a few years ago, and this may be like a decade ago. And Billy Ripken, Cal's brother, who also played with him with the Orioles, was like, oh, yeah, there comes Cal with a brand new batting stance. Let's see how this one works out. It always kind of ended up in his normal stance. It was just always the setup. And the one that I remember the most was he would drop the bat to above, and as a right-handed hitter, just above his right elbow in the back. And he was pulling on it like he was playing an upright bass. And then as soon as the pitch was delivered, well, of course, he would step forward and the bat would go up and then he would approach the ball like he normally did. I don't know what that setup was supposed to accomplish, but I'm happy to sit here and to tell you to say, not that, you know, Austin Riley has become Cal Ripken because that would be great, but that Austin Riley hasn't had to overhaul his stance with quite the frequency that Mr. Ripken did. But nonetheless, whatever he's done has certainly worked out. And sometimes it's not a change in the mechanics. It's a change in the overall approach. But Let's look at the numbers here for a moment. His home run streak of five consecutive games uh, as of the three-run homer on Saturday, that matched a Braves franchise record. Uh, last guy to do it was Ronald Acuna Jr. back in 2018, and three of those were leadoff home runs. A really impressive run by Ronald. And you might remember how that streak ended uh, because the Marlins decided to plunk him to lead off a game, and that in and, in and of itself could be a whole episode of the show for another time. But for Austin Riley, I mean, it's a list that's got you know the likes of Hank Aaron, Rogers Hornsby, yeah, he played for the Braves for one year. He's on that list. Pretty good stuff for Austin Riley. And if you flash back to a year ago when Austin was getting the big extension late in the season, it came on the heels of a red-hot month of July, the likes of which uh, was pretty outstanding. He set a record for extra base hits in a month. And I think he's been searching a little bit. And maybe the pressure, the expectation, all the things that kind of go with that, I mean, wanting to be, as he has said himself, you know, the best version of himself to help this team win. And you know, you put a lot of pressure on yourself, and I think sometimes that kind of manifests itself in the game. But putting all that aside, the power display for Austin Riley, the five-game home run streak, six home runs overall, a career-best seven RBI in one game against Arizona last week, and coming into Sunday where he was finally quieted down by Milwaukee and by Julio Tehran, of all people, well, 16 RBI in five games. That's exactly what you want out of your number three hitter. And I know a lot of people have you know, discussed it, particularly as we talk about it, have the discourse online, some of it worth discussing on the air, some of it not worth the airtime. But Austin Riley, as the third-place hitter of this Braves club, I mean, there is an expectation that you're going to be driving in some runs, and boy, did he over the past week. But it was good to hear from Austin Riley during that Arizona series, especially after the two-homer and seven-RBI game that he had in that crazy loss, the 16-13 to loss, about having a game like that, about kind of turning some things around. But as Austin revealed after the game, it was about just kind of simplifying things overall. Take a listen to Austin Riley. You know, I feel like I've been fighting myself all year to get things going. It's been up and down, up and down. Uh, hopefully, you know, that's the spark that I need, you know, going into the, the off day, you know. And then today I just told myself, go out there and have fun. Don't put too much pressure on yourself. Go out there, have fun, you know, play the game that you love. You know, I felt a lot more relaxed up there at the plate. You know, I think I kind of got caught up in – Way too much going on, you know, uh, up in my head to go out there and, and try to hit 97, 98. Um, so, you know, just like I said, we talked in the cage and it was like, hey, let's just keep it as simple as possible and have fun out there. And, and, you know, just try to be as 
tension-free as, as, as much. I try to be as tension-free as I can in most things that I do because a lot of times, no matter how big or how small the task is, you can spend more time than you should kind of psyching yourself out about it or just setting that bar, setting that expectation so high that no matter what you do, you're not going to be able to meet that. And if you think that it bothers you when somebody doesn't perform, imagine being the guy in the box, on the mound, in the field, they're carrying that stuff around, too. And for Austin Riley, I think he's carried around a good amount of that at times this year and has just needed to kind of take a step back, get that perspective, which I think is something he has gained uh, through some of the ups and downs of the course of his career, looking all the way back to 2019 when he came up, had the home run barrage. Well, then he went into it being about as opposite of that as he could be and ended up you know, with an injury, ended up in the minor leagues rehabbing that and left off Atlanta's playoff roster in 2019, had to fight for a job in 2020, Came back into it with a hold on it in 2021, but that's when he started to take off. Had that breakout season, followed it up with the year he put up a year ago, becoming an all-star for the first time, getting the largest contract in franchise history. That's something I think that's not lost on him either. So he would like to be that guy, that building block, that foundational piece for the Braves over the course of the next decade. And it looks like if you just kind of put it all together and pace him out for the rest of the year, if he can stay on just the averages of some of the ups and downs. This is sizing up to be a pretty good year for Austin Riley. Now, he is one of the key pieces for this Braves lineup. As I mentioned a little bit earlier in the show, they got lots of key pieces because they have an embarrassment of riches and the best lineup in Major League Baseball. And if you don't believe me, just go look at where they sit in most offensive categories, including by far the most home runs in all of baseball. All of that while improving their strikeout numbers dramatically and and drastically to become an even more dangerous offense. You're not seeing this club go into day after day after day of feast or famine style games, which kind of felt like a thing last year, especially 2022. There seemed to be just some, some games, some stretches, some series, but I haven't really felt like that for longer than maybe a day or two this year. And if it's a day or two, that's not a stretch. That's not a streak. That's not something that I think you need to particularly worry about. That's just baseball, but the guys that they have assembled here, and this is no mistake. I mean, this is exactly what Alex Anthopoulos is looking for. This is what you know, Brian Snitker has done a great job of leading, you know, and the accountability that these guys have one to another. They love playing together. And one guy they love playing with is Travis Darno. He came over as a free agent prior to 2020. And this is one of those, and I asked Brian Snitker about it, you know, the catchers that Atlanta has had for the last, I don't know, six, seven, eight years now, whether it was Tyler Flowers, Brian McCann, uh, Travis Darno, Kurt Suzuki. I mean, and that's in no particular order. These are guys that they've counted on to help lead this staff. And offensively, these guys have helped out in the lineup, but Travis Darno, I mean, it was his arrival in Atlanta was serendipitous timing, most certainly. He came in in the weird shortened season with no fans in the stands whatsoever, but he was a huge part of a Braves team that was a win away from the World Series. Then in 2021, they go win the whole darn thing, and he catches every single inning of the postseason, and you don't see that happen too often, but Travis Darno, he's just been a, an integral piece. And as I talked about at the top of the show, Giving him an extension is just something that felt like a foregone conclusion. It was going to happen eventually. The Braves had an $8 million option on him for next year. Well, they went ahead and gave him an $8 million contract with another $8 million option for 2025. But I want to hear from Travis Darno, who talks a little bit about you know, the fit here, how much he likes being here, and how thankful he is for the situation that he's in playing for this Atlanta Braves team, which obviously has a lot to play for. It's humbling. It's an honor. I, I just try to be a good person every day, and I'm just thankful all these guys – Love me as much as I love them. Alex was saying he expected to do this. I know you were hoping to do it. Uh, was there ever, you wouldn't say it was expectation, it was more just a hope that this eventually happened. Yeah, it was a hope that it would happen. Like I said, just thankful that it did and thankful that everybody wanted me to stay another year. 
about just a, he said he was thinking or wanted to sign you in 2019. How quickly did this become a home, and, and you know, how nice is it to know that you've had a home here for four or five-plus seasons now? For me, pretty instantly, with how much the city welcomed my brother when he was only here shortly. You know, that 2020 year was funky when there were no fans here, but when 21 started, I could tell uh, they loved me and, and they welcomed me, and I'm thankful that now this will be four, next year will be five years to be here. I'm, I'm just thankful. Yeah, there's a lot to be thankful for. The Braves have done a lot of winning, and Travis Darno has been a huge part of that. An all-star for the first time last year, well-deserved. I think that as the Braves went out and made the trade for Sean Murphy, you might have thought, okay, the writing's on the wall. They don't need too many of these catchers. They've already dealt Wilson, or excuse me, William Contreras, who we saw with Milwaukee. Who could be next? Maybe they'll trade Travis Darno for something else they need. Well, that was a rumor that was repeatedly shot down by Brian Snitker and by Alex Anthopoulos, who we also caught up with on the day as the Braves announced that extension prior to the series opener against Arizona to get some of his thoughts and his reflections on Travis Darno, who is a player that he's known since all the way back in the Blue Jays days when he was a farmhand that was plucked from the Philadelphia Phillies but then ended up getting traded to the Mets. And as you heard Darno say, or, or Mark Bowman of MLB.com asked Travis, you know, I mean, there was an interest in 2019 when he got released by the Mets to having Darno come over, but as fate would have it, he went over and kind of got his career to take off after a quick stop in Los Angeles that didn't amount to anything with the Dodgers, but had a great three months with the Tampa Bay Rays, and that catapulted him into the deals that he's gotten with the Atlanta Braves and, of course, the winning that he's done. But it's just really cool to see the threads that all kind of come together in the bigger picture here. And for Alex Anthopoulos, this is a deal he was very happy to have done. Here's the Braves general manager talking about re-signing Travis Darno. I've said it before, you know, even when we brought uh, Sean Murphy in and people were speculating on trades, and I even told Travis, like, maybe finally people will stop speculating on trades now. I said it so many times over, you know, he's not going anywhere, he's here to stay. I've said it, he's, he's, a, he's, one of, he's, a, he's really the glue for us in my mind. Uh, he's part of the, the f- furniture here as well. I mean, he's just so key. Obviously, on the field, he's fantastic, and what he does behind the plate is fantastic, but... Everything he brings and what he means is just can't, I mean, I can't say enough about him as a person. It was a no-brainer to, to keep him here and the fact that he wanted to stay. How much do you remember him just how, I mean, you probably knew him as a kid, right? Oh, yeah. How cool was it to see what he's growing? Yeah, I remember uh, when he was in A-ball, he was telling one of our coaches, hey, why am I still here? They're, they're you know, they're playing with my 3,000 hits. I got to get going, you know? And uh, he's got, he's really funny, um, tremendous, great athlete. Um, and, you know, even when he was released by the Mets, I remember calling his agent, we had Brian McCann and Flowers, and I remember calling his agent saying, I don't have a spot right now, but I want to find one. I want to find a way to get this guy and find a way to get him on the roster, you know, and just there was, you know, I was like, if you can give me a few days, maybe something happens, someone gets hurt, we'll bring him in as a 25th man and so on. And look, he ended up going to L.A. and then Tampa. Uh, but look, we were able to get him that following that offseason. You know, and we were excited that he, I remember being on the phone with him and I want to say selling him on the organization, but really promoting the organization and what it was like and how his family's going to get taken care of and the coaches and that we're all about winning. And, you know, I believe that he feels like we've honored what we've said and he loves it here. He keeps wanting to come back. So, uh, and, but, you know, guys like that make this place a great place, right? He, it, it kind of works both ways. Getting the Travis Darnos in here make this a more desirable place for teammates to play and guys to stay here. So, you know, I think it gets Max Fried to want to be here. I think it gets Charlie Morton to want to be here. It gets, these, just, it's, it's a carryover. When a guy like that commits to you for how well-respected and how important he is, I think the value is through the roof. Let me tell you, too, man, it was interesting and, and quite illuminating to hear his Braves teammates and how excited they were 
to have Travis Darno to know he was going to be back for another year. And again, he wasn't walking into free agency and it was a foregone conclusion that he might just be out the door. There was a hope, as you heard from Travis Darno, that this was going to come together. And for Alex Anthopoulos, more than the hope, there was an intent of getting this deal done. And of course, the Braves announcing it takes all the question out of it. But again, as you look at this club, and a lot of folks made a, a very big deal, and understandably so, about the leadership of this club. I and mean, where are they going to turn? Will they lose Freddie Freeman to free agency? Dansby Swanson leaves and goes to Chicago. Who are the leaders on this team? Travis Darno is one of the leaders on this team. But as you discuss that with the whole club, they don't really look to – there's not one guy that's in charge of leading them out, not even the manager, that's in charge of like, leading them out onto the field of battle and you know, giving them orders and showing them what to do. That's, the I think, the, really the X factor of this club. And I've written about this for the Marietta Daily Journal as well, just the ability man-to-man and, and the desire to play for one another is something that just really takes the Braves to that next level, and it's something I think a lot of clubs have spent a lot of time and a lot of money trying to figure out how to crack that code. But having Travis Darno back is something that makes a ton of sense. And as you heard there at the end, when you look at what Travis Darno's effect is, you can look at the stats. You can look at the work that he does behind the scenes with the pitchers and with the staff. You can look at what he does uh, behind the scenes from a overall clubhouse character leadership standpoint. And you can also look at the effect that that has on other players as they start to kind of size up, all right, where do I want to be? And, you know, if I want to be in Atlanta, you know, who's going to be here for a while? And the Braves have done a very nice job of answering the question, who's going to be here if I sign a long-term contract? Well, how about Austin Riley through 2032? How about Sean Murphy and Spencer Strider through 2029? How about Ron Lacuna Jr. through 2028? Matt Olson through 2030? I mean, it's a ridiculous amount. Ozzy Albies, 2027. Orlando Arcia just signed a three-year deal to hang around here. I mean, there are a lot of guys that are going to be here for more than a hot minute. So it's good to see that. And, you know, we'll see what happens with the Max Fried saga. You want to get him back and get him healthy and get him going. And, of course, the Braves have one more year of control next year. He's not walking into free agency yet, but, you know, we've seen extensions happen. Now, we know how much Max Fried means to this team. And, again, Charlie Morton has kind of been on the Travis Darno schedule of let me sign for a year and an option, and then we get to the end of the year. We rip up that option. We just make it a one-year deal with another option. And if he wants to keep pitching, I'm here to tell you, you can do a lot worse than back-end starter Charlie Morton because he's got some upside to him. And we'll see how all of that plays out. But, again, as we wrap up this week in Braves baseball, you really got to look at the series win that I think this club was really looking for and, and maybe needing just to maybe quiet some of the some of the doubts, some of the frustrations that came out of a couple of winnable series against the Chicago White Sox and the Arizona Diamondbacks, respectively. Then you go up to Milwaukee, and you play kind of a gritty, tough club against another first-place team. You, you play tough enough. You win that first game, close in the second, come back and win the third one. You'll certainly take that momentum. They'll enjoy it in the off day. They will face the Boston Red Sox in a quick two-game series. That's another club that's trying to figure out what it wants to do in advance of the trade deadline. Then you got the Milwaukee Brewers all over again as they come to Atlanta. So it's a, I think it's a, a test for this team. And we'll see as the trade deadline approaches what that brings. And also we'll see what the timetable is for Max Fried. He's going to be making another rehab assignment, another rehab start on the assignment. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on in the show. But when we come back, we're going to take a stroll down memory lane. That's what I'm calling it. We're going to discuss one of the most memorable moments, I think, in Braves history. I remember this as clear as day. And I cannot believe it was 30 years ago. But Ron Gant is going to join me to discuss that 1993 press box fire, Fred McGriff's arrival, Fred McGriff making it into the Hall of Fame. What does that mean? The bobblehead giveaway from last week in which Ron Gant is just standing in front of that fire with his arms outstretched, the bat up, just wondering what in the world's going on. I'm sure a lot of people were at that time, but the Braves, they definitely caught fire after that. We're going to talk about all of that and maybe 
pepper in a question about Ron Lacuna Jr. from one 30-30 man to another. We'll get Ron Gant's thoughts on that. That's all coming your way next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now, back to more From the Diamond. Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back into From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Grant McCauley with you from the Kia Studios here on a Sunday as we wrap up what was the first full week after the All-Star break and a lot of things were going on and not just in the current in the current day for the Braves, which is usually the focus here, but we also had a unique anniversary. 30 years ago this week, the Braves traded for Fred McGriff, the press box caught fire, and, well, as you know, the Braves also went on a little bit of a run in 1993 in one of the great finishes and great division races we've ever seen. On that night, though, when the press box caught fire, there was a lot of different things that were happening both before, during, and, well, after the game, and there were several Braves that I think ended up with some pretty iconic visuals in the form of photographs, and one of those photographs turned into a bobblehead the Braves gave away this past week, and that belonged to Mr. Ron Gant. I'm thrilled to be joined by Ron right now here on From the Diamond. He, of course, is a longtime Atlanta Brave, and of course you see him now on Fox 5 as he has been part of that team for quite a while as well. Ron, I really appreciate you making some time on what is kind of a fun week to walk down memory lane for the Atlanta Braves. Uh, absolutely. brings back a lot of different memories, and most of them good. I mean, uh, what a night that was at the ballpark that night on the night that we got Fred McGriff. But, uh, yeah, it, it's special. Um, it is definitely something that is sentimental to me, and it's an honor to have a bobblehead of that night because that's one of the most memorable nights in Atlanta Braves history. Yeah, no doubt about that. And there's just so many different things that just all kind of came to a crossroads in that 1993 season. And I want to get into, obviously, the press box fire, the photos that you guys were able to take beforehand, which might be one of the (laughs) the craziest photo shoots I think I've ever seen. Uh, And then, of course, what happened after Fred McGriff arrived. But as you kind of look at the pieces that were put into place leading the Braves into that 1993 season, I mean, you were part of, I think, one of the most special times in Atlanta Braves history. Some exceptional teams, worst to first in 91, World Series appearances in 91 and 92. I'll always maintain the 91 World Series was an instant classic. My only gripe was the wrong team won. But what were the memories yeah. <laughs> uh, that flood back to you when you start thinking about that time in your life and that time in your career? Well, we can even go back to 1990 when we were uh, basically the worst team in baseball. And uh, the Braves front office, John Schroholtz, Bobby Cox, they uh, put their thinking hats on and they put together a really good ball club for the upcoming season in 1991. You know, first part of that season in 91, we weren't so sure how good we were, but it ended up being a special season because no other team did what we did the second half of the season and was able to put together a run to get into the playoffs and go on to the World Series. So, you know, going from 1990 to 1991 was like, it's like nothing that I could ever imagine even at the time when I was playing, but Mm -hmm. it was happening right before our eyes. And it was just, it's something we just rode the wave. Yeah. And I kind of feel like just as somebody who was growing up watching those teams and very familiar with the Braves and for so long, you know, it was just not being able to find the right mix of mm-hmm. players. I mean, we had Dale Murphy, which was very cool, uh, but it was trying to get a surrounding cast. In 1990, Dale Murphy was traded away, and as you pointed out in 1991, mm-hmm. some really special things started happening. I guess it's kind of like the old Wizard of Oz analogy where everything went from black and white to Technicolor all of a sudden as you came into your own. <laughs> yes. you know, David Justice, Terry Pendleton, and Sabreem came over. You had the pitching staff. I mean, everything yeah. just started to come together. Yeah, we're not in Kansas anymore, Dorothy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was just, it was <laughs> special. I mean, and, you know, if you look back to those teams, 
back then and you look at how the front office conducted what types of pieces, what types of players they decided to bring over, you see a lot of similarities in today's Braves teams. Alex Anthopoulos is doing a tremendous job bringing the right players over Mm -hmm. at the right time. And so between the two errors, there are a lot of similarities. Chatting with Ron Gant here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. He joins me on the waitfor.com hotline as we take a walk down memory lane to, and again, it's hard to believe, 30 years ago, the Braves traded for Fred McGriff. The press box caught fire, and as the old saying goes, so did the Atlanta Braves. One of the most memorable debuts, Ron, in Braves history as McGriff came over. Let me ask you, just from a general sense, what you remember about that night, maybe where the club was at that time when Fred came over? Because, again, it's hard to believe it has been so long because in a lot of ways it just kind of feels like yesterday. Yeah, and, you know, after – that's a good point because after, you know, the 1991 and 1992 seasons making the postseason and going on to the World Series – We felt like 1993, we still had the ball club to do that. The front office, again, made the right move. We felt like we needed one more piece. And we got that piece in Fred McGriff because we were nine games back behind the Giants that season. Until we made that trade the night of the press box fire, Fred shows up. He's inserted into the lineup right away. We're down five to nothing in that game. I'm on first base. He hits a big two-run shot to put us ahead, and then we win that game. And after that, we were the hottest team in baseball. Unbelievable to see in the run that the Braves went on. I believe it was 54-17 and 17 after the arrival of Fred McGriff. The, mm-hmm. uh, the Giants won 103 games. The Braves, well, they won 104. And I think as a result of this, yep. we probably saw the advent of the wild card in the expanded playoffs, but that may be a discussion for another time. But this press box fire is such a hot topic, no pun intended, among Braves fans. (laughs) Um, I went back and watched some news reports and the game recently on YouTube because, again, it's amazing as we were chatting right before we came on, what you can do with technology these days. But now we talk about the bobblehead, I think, a little bit. As you said, Uh an honor to get a bobblehead, but um, as you got to the ballpark that night, I would imagine that was a pretty surreal scene to see any part of a stadium on fire. Yeah, uh, you know, we actually just started batting practice and when the fire ignited. And I remember I'm like, as it kept getting larger, I'm like, wow, this is going to be a problem. And sure enough, you start hearing, you know, fire engines coming in. You could hear them from the distance uh, from inside the stadium. I believe the gates had opened, but, you know, a lot of people at that time were just now on their way to the ballpark. So there were only like a handful of fans there. So they kind of cleared those people out. And I felt like I'm like, uh, you know, this is pretty crazy. We might not ever see this again. Maybe I should take a photo in front of us. So a bunch (laughs) of us started taking photos. And then I started doing an interview, and all of a sudden you hear this huge explosion, and everybody just starts running towards center field because we thought pieces of the stadium were going to start flying. So it was just something you never thought you'd ever see in your lifetime. No, I, I can't even imagine you know being that close to it. I mean, watching it on TV was just kind of surreal because, again, you just kind of wonder, how is the stadium going to be able to weather something like this? But as it turned out, you yeah. guys were able to play a baseball game that night, and it ended yeah, up being they, a pretty important one. Yeah, they did a really good job. They got the fire engines in there fairly quickly. And, and got the fire put out finally. I believe uh, it was supposed to be a 7.35 game or whatnot, but we ended up starting at like 9.40 or whatever. The game ended up after midnight. So, you know, they, they did a great job getting that fire under control and, and letting that game continue that night and, and letting the fans see something that they were coming to the game to see because I think we sold a lot of tickets that mm-hmm. night because everyone wanted to come and see Fred McGriff. Yeah, there were an awful lot of tickets sold that night and many nights after that as the 93 Braves mm-hmm. went on the run that they did. So let me ask you, this: the creation of this bobblehead, I mean, 
Do the Braves contact you and let you know this is something that they're thinking about? Or did you find out, kind of like the rest of us, when the promotional calendar came out, that there's going to be a Ron Gant press box bobblehead night? Yeah, they did contact me, and um, they asked me what I thought about it, you know, which was I didn't expect, you know, but I, I guess it's, it's really creative what they did with it. Uh, but when they did ask me, they sent me uh, kind of like a prototype of what it would look like. And I said, it is perfect <laughs> because it captures exactly how I felt at the time. I kind of had my hand and my bat up in the air like, what is going on? But I had a smile <laughs> right, on my face. Yeah. So that photo captured the moment of like kind of what I was thinking with this fire in the background behind me. As you look back on that and with this bobblehead, it's a fun night to you know relive. And obviously a lot of great things happened for the 93 Braves after that. The arrival of Fred McGriff kind of setting the tone for that second half. Of course, Greg Maddox had signed over the previous winter. You had Tom Glavin, John Smoltz, Steve Avery, the makings of just one of the greatest pitching staffs that you could assemble. Yourself, David Justice, Terry Pendleton. I mean, I could go all the way down the list. I've collected a lot of cards over the years. But, you know, kind of just, I yeah. guess, putting it in perspective from – what the Braves are doing today. I thought you hit on something really interesting earlier on. This is a team that just seemed to be built piece by piece through the minor leagues you guys came through, and I've talked to some of your teammates at that time. You guys weren't used to losing in the minor leagues. Had an awful lot of talent, and I think that's something that kind of manifested at the big league level as well. Well, there's a reason why Brian Snicker is now the manager of the Atlanta Braves is because coming up through the minor league system as a young kid myself, all of our instructors were really serious about their jobs. And it was ABC baseball. If you were in the Braves organization as a player and you were going to make it to the major leagues, you had to play baseball the right way. And there's no better organization in all of major league baseball than the Atlanta Braves as far as bringing these players through their minor league system, developing those players and making them ready for the big leagues. Now you're seeing guys coming up through the minor league system and they're ready to go to the big leagues right away. Mm -hmm. And it's just because of how the Braves run their organization. Brian Snicker being one of those guys, when I was coming through the organization, I mean, there was no one that worked harder as a coach than Brian Snicker. So he really deserved to become the manager of the Atlanta Braves. He's now won a world series and I think he's going to win another one. And you know, it's a product of the environment uh, that the uh, organization created. And they've certainly created that whole environment for winning these days as well. Wrapping up with Ron Gant here mm -hmm. on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. A couple of questions for you about some Hall of Famers, and I'm going to start with the newest Hall of Famer. He's going in this weekend being inducted, and that, of course, is Fred McGriff. I know you played with him. I know you played against him. But if you had to define or just describe what it was, kind of the gravitas of Fred McGriff, because I feel like he's one of the great underrated sluggers in baseball history. It took him too long to get this call to the hall. Oh, absolutely. I mean, well, one of my best teammates, favorite teammates ever, one. Uh, but two, as a player, he's just a baseball player. He could pick it at first base. And there's no sweeter swing that I've ever seen in baseball. There's been a lot of players that had, you know, you talk about Griffies and those kinds of players. Mm -hmm. But Fred McGriff had the sweetest swing I've ever seen. And he never got fooled. He could fool a pitcher and make the pitcher think that he was going to be looking for a certain pitch. So he was just one of those guys that was just a, a very smart, intelligent, high IQ baseball player. And being around him, I learned a lot from him. You brought up Brian Snitker and, and kind of what he's doing, the role he played both in the minor league instruction for some of you guys, but also the role obviously he plays to this day. The skipper that you played for at that time, of course, was Bobby Cox, who a lot of people might kind of forget mm -hmm was the general manager for quite a time in the late 80s to help put yes. some of these pieces together. As Bobby led you guys, what was it about him and maybe his leadership style that really lent itself? It seemed like through all 25 men on the roster, guys were ready to run through a wall for Bobby Cox. 
Yeah, and that's because he would run through a wall for you, and and that's the reason why uh, he's the all-time leading manager being ejected from baseball games. Yeah. I mean, if he felt like there was a situation where he thinks any of his players are getting taken advantage of, he'd step right in there. And as a player, if you know your manager has your back on and off the field, even if in your personal life, if there's anything going on, he'll ask about it and say, what can I do to help you? Uh, he was just that kind of manager and that type of person. So being around Bobby was, you know, knowing baseball to its finest core. He was one of the best managers to be able to manage a game and pull out wins. And there, to me, there's no better manager that I'd rather play for than Bobby Cox. Yeah, I think that a lot of guys that played under Bobby Cox, whether it was for multiple seasons like yourself, or even maybe just stopped over in Atlanta for a, a quick cup of coffee or a couple of months, have a very similar story about Bobby Cox. Let Absolutely. Me wrap, let me wrap up with this. Um, yourself being a multiple-time 30-30 man, I know you keep an eye on what the Braves are doing here these days. There's a guy named Ron Lacuna Jr. that's doing some things that I'm still trying to wrap my mind around. I mean, it's hard to find anybody that you can really compare him to. He's done the 30-30 yeah. thing before. I think he's looking to do the 40-40 thing. As somebody who mm-hmm. knows how hard it is to blend the power and the speed, can you kind of describe what it is you see when you watch Ron Lacuna Jr. play baseball? The game is just not that easy. It is not, and most players will tell you that. There's a handful of guys over the history of time that made the game look easy, and he's one of them. But to sit back and watch a guy do what he's doing with all that talent, I mean, you're talking about the five tools, but I actually think that he has six because his IQ, his brain, how it functions on a baseball field is different than pretty much any other player I've ever seen. His balance at the plate, his hand-eye coordination, his bat-to-ball vision is just unmatched like anybody I've ever seen. I've played with some really good players Mm -hmm. and against some really good players, but you know, and to be able to play outfield, cover the ground like he does, he's got a cannon for an arm, but just a smart baseball player too. I believe he will go 40-40 barring any injury, keeping my fingers crossed on that, but he's a talent like I haven't seen before. And nowadays it's rare because the game has changed a lot with all the new rules and different things that have gone on. And he's taken advantage of everything out there on the field. So just a special player that you're probably going to see once in a lifetime. Yeah. Six tool player. I really like that description. Yes. Ron, I appreciate all your time. Of course, uh, just kind of taking that stroll down memory lane to the press box fire that was somehow mm-hmm. amazingly 30 years ago and talking a little bit of current <laughs> wow. race as well. Let people know where they can catch up with you. I know that Fox five, you've been doing a lot of great stuff over there for a number of years now and anything else that you might yeah. be working on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm at Fox five. I'm on good day, Atlanta from four 30, to 11 weekday mornings if you are cutting the cable and you're going with connected television we have an app now it's called fox local and you can download it if you have roku amazon fire stick or fire tv you can download it and view fox 5 atlanta news weather and traffic anytime so fox local download it all right a lot of people know they can download that and of course we appreciate you joining us on from the diamond which can be found wherever you get your podcast uh, ron again i really appreciate it look forward to catching up with you down the road and uh, congratulations on this old bobblehead thing i think that in and of itself is a nice little accomplishment grant thank you so much it's great talking to you and it's a lot of fun to be honored like that thank you so much my thanks again to longtime Atlanta Brave Ron Gant for joining the show. When we come back, we're going to expand our horizons because the trade deadline is looming and across Major League Baseball, that means a lot of moving and shaking could be happening this week. And perhaps one of the greatest talents we'll ever see could be changing teams. We'll talk about Shohei Otani, the trade rumors, and some of the big stories from the week that was next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. 
Now, more from the Diamond with Graham McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. It is hour two from the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Grant McCauley with you live from the Kia Studios in Midtown as we wrap up the week that was for the Braves. And, of course, we're taking a look at the days and the weeks to come here as we march through the final few days, I guess, or week and a half, if you're being technical, of this month of July where so many things are happening on the baseball calendar. We've talked a lot about the trade deadline over the past few weeks. We're going to talk a little bit more about it. Here before too long, because Victor Rojas, longtime voice of the Los Angeles Angels, is going to join the show and talk about the biggest rumor of them all, because it's the biggest player of them all, that's Shohei Otani. Is he going to get traded before the deadline? We're going to get into that as we're taking our trip around the big leagues, though. One of the big calendar dates for me, appointment television, whatever you want to call it, is Hall of Fame weekend. I look forward to it every year to see some of the great players of yesteryear getting honored up in Cooperstown as they are inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame and among the two-person class for this year, as far as the great former players are concerned, the crime dog, Fred McGriff. You just heard from Ron Gant, his teammate, way back in 93. When the Braves acquired Fred McGriff, things just kind of went to that next level. And that's saying something. When you consider the Braves had already been to the World Series twice before McGriff showed up, but it just added some legitimacy to the middle of a lineup that just maybe needed that one more piece. So let's hear a little bit from Fred McGriff, who gave his Hall of Fame speech uh, on the grounds up there in Cooperstown. It's, and if you've never been, by the way, before we jump into all this, induction weekend is a lot of fun. I went in 2018, which was a crazy five-person class highlighted by Chipper Jones. I mean, it, it was folks everywhere. But that is a not a town. It's a village, Cooperstown is. It is 100% baseball. You can go up there. You can go to the museum, all of the stores, all of the history, all of the uh, double-day field. I mean, there's so much. And then if you're there for induction weekend, I mean, you're there with essentially, at least I was, like 25, maybe 30,000 or more. Uh, basically, just folks are just like you. They're looking to enjoy baseball and, and in its purest and, I think, most innocent form in terms of like when you fall in love with the game and team and players and you just want to see you know, what they're able to accomplish, you, you feel all of those things up in Cooperstown. The museum in and, of, in and of itself is an awful lot of fun, so I would invite you at any time of year to go up there and check it out. If you want it to yourself, I've heard many people say, just check it out in the winter. You can go up there, take all the time that you want. There is no big crowd, but induction weekend is an awful lot of fun. And for Fred McGriff, he had been waiting quite a while, quite honestly, for this induction weekend, for this call to the hall. He went all the way through the writer's ballot all 10 times and was never able to get over that hump. But the baseball committees that have been kind of reimagined over the past few years now have the modern era baseball committee. And Fred McGriff was unanimously selected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. And this is kind of by the jury of your peers, but in the way that you'd want it to be. These are people who played alongside, against, uh, and saw Fred McGriff over the course of his Hall of Fame career. 493 home runs. That's uh, part of his ticket to Cooperstown, but so much more, as I mentioned to Ron Gant, one of the great underrated sluggers of all time. But let's hear a little bit from Fred McGriff as he describes what it was like to finally get the call from the Hall when he was elected back in December. I'd like to thank the members of the Contemporary Baseball Era Players Committee who elected me. When your career is validated by former players and executives that saw you play, that's as good as it gets. I will never forget getting that call from Jane last December. About a month earlier, I talked to the Hall of Fame folks about how this voting works. They told me, if elected, I'll receive a call before it was announced on MLB Network 
and please don't put it out there to go on social media. I'm like, cool, it's all good. So when my phone rang and my caller ID showed us from the Hall of Fame, with my wife and daughter at home, I slipped into my office and closed the door. I answered the phone and heard Jane say, congratulations, you've been unanimously elected to the National Baseball Hall of Fame. It was the best phone call of my life. But now remember, they told me to be careful about getting it on social media. So I'm whispering to Jane, okay, thank you. you know? I went back into the living room where my wife and daughter were. I didn't tell them about the news. I played calm, like I knew nothing. I just told them, hey, they're going to announce who got into the Baseball Hall of Fame at 8 o'clock on MLB Network, so let's turn it on. <laughs> Believe me, it was pure joy and happiness on my wife and daughter's face when it was announced that I was the next electee to the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Then they both looked at me and said, you knew. You know, but it was, it was great. I think while you're having one of the most fun moments of your career and, and maybe a lifetime accomplishment as far as a baseball player is concerned, you might as well have a little bit of fun. For the people who have been along for that ride all the way through and waiting and cheering and hoping that Fred McGriff was going to get his due one of these days. But yeah, one of the things as we continue talking about the brand new Hall of Famer, Fred McGriff, the crime dog, the former Atlanta Brave here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. This is from the Diamond with Grant McCauley. Let's hear a little bit about how this path started because you might think, all right, well, if the Baseball Hall of Fame is the top 1% of the players who've ever played Major League Baseball and pretty much every team that you have out there is the top 1% of wherever they came from, and, and that's not even to say how much talent and how many people played baseball this distilled through the minor leagues just to get you there, let alone end up in the Hall of Fame. Where did it all start for Fred McGriff, the Tampa area kid? Well, you might be surprised to know that for Fred McGriff, uh, there was a coach, a high school coach, that wasn't exactly sold on his baseball futures. Take a listen to Fred McGriff talking about how difficult it was just to get a spot on his high school baseball team. I entered Tampa Jefferson High School my sophomore year, and I tried out for the varsity baseball team as my school didn't have a JV team. I'd always been either a pitcher or first baseman in the league, but they had a senior first baseman. So I figured to make that team, I would have to try out for the outfield. Other than one brown ball getting past me, I thought I did okay. At the last day of tryouts, the coach popped quest and said, I'll post who made the team outside the locker room later tonight. With the flashlight, I looked for my name. When I didn't see my name on that list, it was disappointing. But that's how I found out I got cut. You know? <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> when I saw Pop back in school, he was my driver's ed teacher. He told me to keep working hard and get stronger. I could have quit playing baseball, but I didn't. Instead, it motivated me. I started riding my bike about three miles each way to the gym. I got stronger, and I continued to play ball. The next year, I tried out again, and I made the team. But to this day, I know they still tease Pops about cutting me in the 10th grade. You know, I'd still be teasing him, too, if I'll be honest with you. But sometimes you just don't know, and sometimes those little motivators allow you to kind of look inward and say, okay, well, what do I have to do to accomplish the goal that I want to accomplish? Because whatever you set out to do in life, I mean, if there's some thought behind it and you are really looking forward to building a career, creating something, 
We all have those moments where you're just kind of going to look inside and say, okay, well, how do I get from this point where I am right now to the next point? And then the one after that and after that, because the big dream, there's a lot of steps along that path to get there, typically for just about everybody. So even Fred McGriff, a Hall of Famer, kind of had to go through a little bit of that before he was even able to start his high school career, which is just crazy to think about. But for most people, when you think about Fred McGriff here in the Atlanta area, as we continue chatting about it on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game, and the new Hall of Famer Fred McGriff, well, when he showed up in 1993, he was one of the most feared sluggers in baseball, and for good reason. And he was the kind of player the Braves desperately needed to kickstart that season in 93 and get them over the hump to chase down the San Francisco Giants and win the National League West. So let's hear Fred McGriff talk about his trade from the San Diego Padres to the Atlanta Braves and, of course, the night of the press box fire where it all got going for Fred McGriff in a Braves uniform. I enjoyed my time as a Padre. Then general manager Joe McElvain got orders in the middle of the season from his bosses to trade a few players to lower payroll. That's when another guy on this stage... John Sherholtz traded for me, bringing me to the Braves. Joe McElvain was doing me a favor by trading me closer to as Tampa as possible. I was very excited to be joining a team that had been a couple of plays away from winning back-to-back championships in 1991-1992. But I was nursing an injury when the trade happened. The day I drove to Atlanta, I left Tampa at noon. I didn't expect to play, but when I got to the ballpark, There is my name in the lineup. I was sweating. But I believe a man upstairs bought me some time when a food heat lamp caught on fire. (laughs) And the start of the game was delayed two hours, long enough for me to get some more treatment, and I felt a little bit better. I started the game, and I tied it up in the sixth inning with the home run. Then the next day, I hit two home runs. And the Braves team, Caught on fire. We end up catching the Giants after being 10 games out of first place at the time of the trade, and we won the division. That 93 team was the best team I believe I ever played on. With Glavin, Maddox, and Smoltz pitching, plus Bobby Cox leading the way. But two years later, in 1995, with the healthy Chipper Jones, it all came together. We finally pulled it off and won the first championship for the city of Atlanta, the proudest team moment of my career. That was a pretty proud moment for any and every Braves fan at that time. It was finally getting over that hump. Winning that World Series third time was truly a charm, and the crime dog was right in the middle of all of that. You look at his overall career numbers as we kind of draw this part of the discussion to a close. I do have a couple of little notes from this past week, one of them, not so little. I'll get to that in a moment, but... You know, Fred McGriff, not only did he hit 493 home runs in a regular season, I mean, he had a, a very good amount of home runs in the postseason. And I think you know, those count as big as anything. You add it all together. This is a member of the 500 home run club, even if you don't want to look at it and say, well, he's a member of the 500 home run club. But these postseason ones, I would argue, count more than maybe some or most of the others throughout the course of the career. They all kind of should go in the same pot, I guess is my point. And when you're tied in home runs with Lou Gehrig, I think you've probably done a few things right as well. But for Fred McGriff, uh, whatever the case, we don't have to argue the merits anymore. We don't have to make a case for him. He is a Hall of Famer. Congratulations to him. Congratulations to Scott Rowland as well, as those men were inducted into the Hall of Fame up in Cooperstown. Uh, Quickly, as we look at some of the big headlines from across the world of baseball for this week, I want to hit a couple in the American League East because there is growing optimism, I would feel, for the New York Yankees that they're going to get Aaron Judge back at some point in the not-too-distant future. And when we were talking a couple weeks ago on the show, 
it sounded like maybe there's no timetable for Judge coming back. Even at Aaron Boone saying cryptic things like, well, I, I can't really put a timetable on that. I can't say if he's going to play again this year. And that probably had you feeling some kind of way if you're a Yankees fan. Of course, fracturing that toe, colliding with the wall at Dodger Stadium back on June the 3rd. Um, and, and that was something that, at the time, you really didn't even know how badly he was hurt. But then, if you're the Yankees operating without Aaron Judge, in addition to all the other hitting woes that they've had this year, uh, is uh, some of the many reasons why they are, what, eight and a half games behind uh, the first-place club, which I'm going to talk about here shortly because it's not who it used to be, but they're going to need Aaron Judge uh, to get healthy. He tore a ligament, actually, in his big toe. That was the injury that Judge sir or Judge suffered uh, at Dodger Stadium, and Aaron Boone said to have uh, Aaron Judge back out there, able to take some pitches and uh, in there and swing. It's a good test, and they're going to see when he can work his way back. But hopefully this is a springboard to a few more of these line batting practices and uh, perhaps a rehab assignment for Aaron Judge is right around the corner because the Yankees are certainly going to need him I think the American League East in general is going to need all the reinforcements it can get for these clubs anyway to try to catch the red-hot Orioles. Because the Orioles have turned themselves from one of 2022's nice surprise teams into one of the best teams in baseball in 2023. And it all kind of coincided to when they brought Adley Rushman up uh, to be a part of that club last year. Some special things that they did, but they have looked to the farm quite a few times. Gunnar Henderson led him to a big win past the Rays on Sunday in Tampa Bay has definitely hit the skids. They were already there when the Braves played them right before the All-Star break and took two out of three. But all of a sudden, the Orioles, who've won back-to-back games against Tampa Bay, they've won seven out of ten. And the Rays have lost seven out of ten. And it's the Orioles with a two-game lead in the American League East standings. The Rays are now in second place. The Blue Jays are in third place. Then you find the Yankees. Then you find the Red Sox. But every single one of those teams, and the Braves are about to see the Red Sox, they're all at least five games over 500. This is a tough division. And for the Orioles to be doing what they're doing with the payroll that they're doing it with, I think it's pretty interesting to see what they're going to do around the trade deadline. They could be pretty stealthy. If they want to take on a little bit of payroll, they might entice a few trades of uh, some teams that might be looking to divest themselves of some very good players. And if you take this team, young team, with the pieces it has and put the right veterans on it, it might feel a little bit like the Fred McGriff trade. In 1993, it may not lead to the World Series this year, but it's going to make that team better and increase their window of winning, which is very much what they're looking forward to doing. So those are some of the stories across baseball. Again, Hall of Fame weekend. Congratulations to Fred McGriff. Been a lot of fun talking about that. But next stop on the baseball calendar is the trade deadline. And when we come back, we will talk about one of baseball's biggest stars who could be on the move. The question we all want to know the answer to, will the Angels trade Shohei Otani? Victor Rojas will join me next to discuss that here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Baseball. Talking Braves and beyond. Baseball. With From the Diamond. Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back into From the Diamond as we continue our look around the big leagues. Grant McCauley with you from the Kia Studios on a Sunday. And yeah, we've got a few days to go before this trade deadline. We haven't seen a lot of moving and shaking. It's Hall of Fame weekend, but... It all just kind of feels like the calm before the storm, and there may be no bigger storm than what is going on in Los Angeles with the Angels should they decide to trade perhaps the biggest player in baseball in the last, what, 25, 50 years. I don't know what the criteria is. I just know Shohei Otani is special, and if he gets traded, that's going to be major news. To help me parse through what the Angels might be thinking about at this moment and the moments to come over the next week or 10 days is Victor Rojas. Uh, Victor, thanks again for joining the show. We talked a little bit earlier this season, but as we know, in the course of a baseball season in and of itself, it is a marathon, not a sprint, but there are certain mile markers we hit, and the trade deadline is always one that people are looking forward to, and this one seems to be pretty intriguing. 
Uh, intriguing to say the least. Uh, and I think uh, everyone's just fascinated with the whole Shohei Otani situation and what the Angels are going to do. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, it, it's a situation that we've really never seen before. Not that great players haven't gotten traded, some of those in the primes of their career, but we've never seen a player like Shohei Otani. So if we start right there, I mean, what exactly do you think the Angels' mindset is when they start to just sit down at a table and figure out what do we do with Shohei Otani? What do we maybe not do if we want to keep him around for a long time? You know, it's a conundrum that the organization is in right now because mm -hmm. you have a guy that is uh, going to hit free agency. There's no doubt the organization would like to retain his services beyond 2023. But you also have to keep an eye on 24 and 25 and 26. And yep. you've got to you finally got to a point where, from a development standpoint, you've drafted and developed some young talent. So as an organization, you're seeing the fruits of your labor, and you have to weigh this whole situation out. You're nine back in the division. Texas is not slowing down. Houston is getting better. And then in the wild card, you're five games back before the weekend. And so you still have, what, eight or nine, ten days before the uh, trade deadline. So you have some decisions to make. I don't know which way the Angels are going to go. I keep saying that if you are, I mean, stunned by a package of players, you have to make that trade because it benefits you not only this year, but into years that are coming. Mm -hmm. And it still puts you in a position to possibly go after them and be a bidder just like everybody else is in the offseason. All right, well, we're going to unpack all of that as we go forward because I know that the Angels, they have two of the best players in this or maybe any generation in Shohei Otani and Mike Trout, but they do find themselves facing, as you just pointed out, an uphill battle for their playoff chances just this year. But, of course, you want the plan to go beyond just any one given year, but it lends itself to the most fascinating trade deadline question perhaps in baseball history, and that is, and let me ask this one first, now I'm going to do a follow-up. Will sure. the Angels trade Shohei Otani, in your opinion? I think the only way they trade them is if they are overwhelmed with a package of players. I don't think they're just going to trade them for the sake of trading them, whether they're in or they're out, because uh, I think you're just doing yourself a disservice. Look, if, you, if the team falters over the next week or thereabouts and just and continues to limp at a 500 pace and you still have to leapfrog Boston and New York and then uh, Toronto, whom the Angels are going to play in three series – I just think it just makes it that much more difficult to move him. Mm -hmm. And you just ride out the wave the rest of the year. Maybe you catch lightning in a bottle, but you keep the attendance going and, and the fan base happy. And then you make your best effort in the offseason to re-sign him. Uh, that's my honest opinion. I don't I don't know. Everyone keeps speculating what the Angels are doing. The Angels are very close to the best. Anybody who says, and I called somebody out earlier uh, this week about, based on what the Angels had said as far as what they're looking for in return, the Angels haven't said anything. The Angels aren't going to say anything, and why would you say anything? Because then you're setting the baseline for whatever a trade package is going to look like. So it's an interesting uh, problem that uh, Perry Manassian has to deal with, and I think he'll find a way. And look, at the end of the day, I believe, and I've followed this team, I do a podcast that's Angels-related, I've followed this team all season long. This is a team that has played essentially 500 baseball this year. Do they have a chance to get in via the wild card? Yes. Anything can happen once you get to the playoffs. Yeah. But I think you have to weigh that versus what I can get in return, because I think there's multiple teams that would be interested in Shohei, even on a rental basis. You have to weigh that versus the return you're going to get and still be in a position to re-sign him if you'd like. Look, if you're the Angels, you're feeling pretty comfortable about yourself because he's spent the last six years here, knows Orange County, 
He selected the angels out of all the other teams that were bidding for his services coming out of Japan. So there's a reason why he wanted to go to Orange County and to the angels. And it looks like he's enjoyed his time there and still is enjoying his time there. So I, I think all of, for all those reasons, the angels are still in a very good position, even if they do decide to trade him, to still retain his services beyond this year. Chatting with Victor Rojas here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. He joins me on the WaitFor.com hotline. Now the next question, the follow-up that I promised you, the next line of this thought exercise really is not will they trade Shohei Otani, but I guess should they trade Shohei Otani? And as you've mentioned, there are a lot of different things that you might want to factor in if you're Perry Manassian, if you're Artie Moreno, if you're anybody who makes these decisions for the Angels' future. This, I think, is the question that everybody is going to have to find an answer to over the next week or week and a half. Yeah, the should is linked to what the return is going to be, you know, and, and that's how I look at it. Yeah. Look, every, everyone keeps likening the uh, situation with Shohei with that of Juan Soto last year. Now, Juan had an extra year. Uh, he's under contract through 24. It's a little bit of a different circumstance. I look at it from the standpoint of, okay, if Max Scherzer were available on the market right now, what's the return on Max Scherzer? And then if Bryce Harper were on the market or Juan Soto again on a short-term rental, what's the value you assess on Juan Soto as a player? Now combine them. To me, that's where the jumping off point is because you're getting a guy that's going to go out there every fifth day and make a start. He's probably going to make eight to nine, possibly 10 starts for you, plus whatever you go into the postseason. And he's going to bat second or third or even fourth for you every single day. So you're getting maximum value for that 10 million or so that's roughly due on his on a prorated basis if you mm-hmm. make a trade for him for the last couple of months of the season, plus whatever you get in the postseason. That's how I would look at it. If I'm Perry, I'm sitting there going, listen, guys, I'm not going to tell you what I want, but you've got a, a number one starter and a number three or four hitter in your lineup in one player. So you tell me what that's worth to you and to your organization for the next two months and your potential playoff push and make me an offer. That's how I would look at it. And I, I would imagine that's how they're looking at it. And again, if you're overwhelmed, you have to make that move. I, I just think you have to make that move if you are overwhelmed in a trade perspective because you're not necessarily playing for this year. Yeah, it would be great for the Angels to get in the postseason. You're rolling the dice. But if you get a package of players that sets you up, possibly even for this year, that package of players could help you this year and maybe you still sneak in via the wild card, but you know it's going to set you up for 24, 25, and beyond. Mm -hmm. And you're showing to Shohei and his representations like, hey, dude, we still want you, but look what we're getting in return. So when you come back, if you decide to come back, we're going to be that much better and that much deeper. That's how I would couch the whole conversation with Otani's representation. Yeah, it's some really, really interesting offshoots and thoughts that go along with a trade like this. It's not a simple scenario of, okay, well, this is a rental player. We're going to see what we can get for him, and then he's going to march off into free agency. All of those things might happen. It's all part of the calculus, but this is a a once-in-a-lifetime player, which would make this, I think, a a once-in-a-lifetime kind of trade scenario. And I don't even know what a Shohei Otani trade looks like because you brought up some interesting points. You take a premier hitter and a premier pitcher. Now you put them together, and that's what you're acquiring with Shohei Otani as if people don't already know who this guy is and what he has yeah. done, I think speaks to what free agency could look like for all of the teams that could be pursuing him and will be pursuing him both at the trade deadline and over the course of the winter. But I want to ask kind of a bigger question, and, and we've touched on a little bit of this, but I'm just curious what it looks like to you in terms of what does this trade deadline mean to the Angels and their path forward? Because it feels like Otani encapsulates both the near future hopes for the clubs in many ways and also the building blocks that you need in order to get yourself where you need to 
in terms of building a consistent winner? Well, I, I think from an Angels perspective, they don't need to make a trade. I think that they are content with what they have in their system and what going forward the plans are. You know, look, if you get a chance to re-sign Shohei Otani, then you reshuffle the deck. The salary structure is unique in that you'll have a lot of money spent on three guys, right? Shohei Rendon, who's due a lot of money for the next three years, and then Mike Trout. But that being said, you've got a lot of young guys, so you can play with the money. The money is not the issue with Otani's situation. I think they're in the catbird seat. Now, what I keep hearing is, is that maybe they'll make some moves to bolster the bullpen. Mm-hmm. Man, I just don't know that if I want to give up premier minor league talent right now to bolster a bullpen to prop up a potential 500 ball clubs or just over 500 ball club. And I think that's the uniqueness of this whole situation. Like, I think the Angels are well positioned finally going into an offseason, even though they've got that the big question mark with Shohei, whether he stays or not, and whether you go after him in free agency, which I think they will for mm-hmm. sure. But unlike previous offseasons, they're, they're, they've got some depth. And and they added to that depth again with their draft. And most of their guys are college guys. Yeah. And so Perry's taken that mindset of, I need guys that are going to accelerate through the system. He likes pushing guys. We've seen it already. I think that's what really be great if he got in. But I don't think it's a negative if you don't get in and still are able to keep that nucleus of young talent that you've been able to, to draft and develop so far. That's my sense on the Angels right now. I mean, it's not an easy thing to, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know how it's all going to go together, but we do know developing players is part of building a winner and making it sustainable over yep. the long term. But as I look at Otani and, and I look at you know where the Angels are right now, and I want to play devil's advocate because you hear a lot of different opinions across the industry of what this trade means, what this trade could look like, how much they should get back, and of course, his chances of returning should they trade him away. I can't really imagine the scenario, but you've laid it out. I mean, Shohei Otani knows the Angels as well as anybody can, so as he makes his decision, I'm sure he's not going to wipe anybody off the board if they're coming with an offer that he's interested in. But if they deal him away, it would feel like a seismic shift for the organization in a lot of ways. So some people have started to link it together with, does another domino fall? If you move on from Otani and he does sign somewhere else, do the Angels consider in any way, shape, or form deciding to get even younger and maybe maximizing their value and exploring the trade market for, say, Mike Trout? You know, it's possible. Anything is possible. Both Mike Trout and and Anthony Rendon have full no-trade clauses in there and both have a lot of money left on their deals. So I think you'd have to you know, incentivize them to to waive that no-trade clause, at least as far as Trout is concerned. I think it's a possibility. I think Mike is very happy where he's at. Mm -hmm. I think Mike is starting to see the fruits of Perry's labor and the Angels' labor as far as the talent. He's not getting any younger. You know, the hamate bone injury, that's just a freak thing. Uh, Last year, the calf issue is different because that's soft tissue, and those can take a little bit longer. But he's had some injuries where they're just freak things. A swing break the hamate bone, a a slide head first a couple years ago in, in Miami, injures his hand. So I I think Mike is still a durable, talented player in the upper echelon of Major League Baseball, and I think there's value to him. question is, you know, I I would imagine the Phillies would want him, the Yankees would want him, um, but like anything else, like what's the return? And, you know, back to the whole Shohei thing, it all goes back to like how many teams can afford to pay the price that I would imagine the Angels are seeking to obtain a player like Shohei or obtain a player like Mike Trout. Shohei and Trout right now are different level, different circumstances. Mm Mm-hmm. So anything is possible. But I think if Shohei moves on, meaning move on and he signs somewhere else in the offseason, 
I would find it very hard to believe that Artie Moreno and the Angels organization would go into a full rebuild and move Trout. I, I think it would just be too much of a setback for the fan base, mm-hmm. and therefore I don't see it happening. You know, knowing Artie and John Carpino and Dennis Cool, how those guys operate in Southern California, I just I just don't see that happening. And I think that's one of the things they weigh right now as far as trading Shohei. It's like, uh, you know, do we take the hit from a financial perspective on a fan base? I look at it having worked in the front office. It's like, look, tickets sold or tickets sold. That's mm-hmm. money that's already booked. I've already got their money. The money that I may not be able to ever recoup is the walk-up money. Families, individuals that are coming to make a an impulse decision to come see Shohei Otani in August and September, and I lose out on those ticket sales, the parking, the revenue generated from souvenirs and merchandise. Mm-hmm. That's the revenue that I'd be losing out on if I were to trade Shohei Otani. Sponsorship money, ticket money, season tickets, corporate suites, that money's already booked and paid for. It's just what's the residual effect of it, you know, the last two months of the season, yeah. plus, you know, potentially next year. Yeah, that's a long-term effect. Of, and when you go into a rebuild, it kind of puts a sign up, an under-construction sign that doesn't yep. necessarily pack the ballpark each and every night, as we both well know. Well, Victor, let <laughs> people know what you've got going on. Feel free to plug the podcast and uh, what you've got coming up as we approach the trade deadline. And as we just talked about for the last 15 or so minutes, one of the most <laughs> intriguing in baseball history, especially for the Angels. Yeah, a lot of interaction on Twitter, especially from Angels fans, and I kind of got into it with other fans as well, because I just like the interaction, the community of Twitter. So uh, our podcast is Angels Win. Uh, It's on all the main podcast uh, outlets, and it's very Angel-centric, but we talk about baseball stuff in general as well, and obviously the next week or thereabouts, it's going to be about the trade deadline and what the Angels decide to do. And look, the Angels right now, like a lot of teams, they're day-to-day. They are literally day-to-day as to... Uh, if they lose tonight, it's like, ah, oh, they got to trade Joe Hay. If they win tomorrow, it's like, there's no way you can trade Joe Hay. It's yeah. like this seesaw battle from the national media to local fan base. And it's that's this time of year. That's what uh, I think everybody loves about it. Absolutely. We love the speculation. It's uh, that little dose of the hot stove right smack dab in the middle of a pennant race. A lot of fun. Yep. Victor, I appreciate all your time. Look forward to chatting with you again soon. Grant, always a pleasure, my man. When we come back, we will put a bow on the week that was for the Braves and, of course, look ahead to what's to come as we count down to the trade deadline and potential moves that the Braves could make. That comes your way next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Back to Grant McCauley for more From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back into From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Grant McCauley with you as we wrap up this week's edition of the show with another look a little more focus on what's ahead for the Braves, but of course, uh, a few other things, odds and ends at the very least. And as some of them, it's kind of saving the best for last as far as discussions we're going to be having about baseball over the next week or 10 days. Well, about eight days now, if we're being honest, ahead of the trade deadline that's coming up. And that's one of the big things that the Braves and all 30 clubs are trying to figure out. Some of these teams, like the Braves, are going to do some buying. Some teams are going to have to decide, are we buyers or sellers? And then there's some obvious sellers out there as well. So everybody is going to have a, a, a role to play as we approach that trade deadline, which, of course, is 6 p.m. on August the 1st. So as far as what the Braves have had going on leading into this week, I mean, the offense is still doing its part over the last 10 games. I mentioned to you that the Braves, since the All-Star break, despite losing back-to-back series before kind of getting right in Milwaukee, they picked up three games in the standings because the Braves had gone, what, four and six over a 10-game span. And the Phillies had also gone four and six over that 10-game span. But then if you look at the Marlins, I mean, the question is not like, well, are the Braves in trouble? Who broke the Braves? I mean, they lost back-to-back series for the first time all year. What happened to the Marlins? 
because their losing streak, an eight-gamer heading into Sunday, it took them from being a team that at one point had the second-best record in the National League to a team that is very much, I mean, yeah, they could still do some buying at the trade deadline, but I think they kind of have to wonder, well, where exactly are we compared to where we were maybe a couple of weeks ago coming into the All-Star break? But this Miami team looked like it might be a little bit more formidable not that long ago. And then they had the head record against the Braves. I mean, it is what it is. The Braves, if you're looking for it more specifically for something that they're looking at the trade deadline for, the answer is pitching. And more specifically, I think it's relief pitching. And that may not sound like anything that's altogether that surprising, but when you consider all the injuries and the depth that the Braves have had to run through, now some good news on the A.J. Minter front is that he's going to begin a rehab assignment on Tuesday with the Gwinnett Stripers down in Jacksonville. On that same series on Wednesday, Max Fried is going to make a rehab start. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But getting A.J. Minter back is a big step for this bullpen because they are kind of without the real lefty weapon that they need to have if they're running at the optimal level. And the real lefty weapon has been, uh, more times than not the last few years, A.J. Minter. Now, Tyler Matzik was also that guy for the Braves in 2021. Tyler Matzik's not available. He's still rehabbing from Tommy John surgery, and he's not going to be walking through that door anytime soon either. So the Braves have had to dip down to the minor leagues to figure some things out. They've had to go out onto the waiver wire, and they've done so again as of Sunday after the game. The Braves announced that they had picked up Yanni Chirinos from the Tampa Bay Rays on a waiver claim. They designated Seth Elledge for assignment, but also the corresponding move on the active roster is that Michael Soroka has once again been optioned down to AAA, and maybe that's a discussion we'll get into a little bit later, but Chirinos missed 2022 due to Tommy John surgery. Really, he's been dealing with some arm injuries for a couple of years, but the Braves are going to try him out as a starter, and I would look at him more as kind of the depth piece that they lost when they no longer had Colby Allard available to him. That may not sound like the biggest and most important piece, but all of the depth and all the innings that they're trying to cover, they all are going to add up. And heading into the trade deadline, this kind of move may be more indicative, at least to me. I mean, and this is trying to bring somebody in that can help you out. But maybe they are going to look a little harder at starting pitchers than I thought they might. Soroka's start against the Milwaukee Brewers wasn't an altogether bad one. He gave up a couple of early runs, and he made a mistake, gave up a home run late, but he covered the six innings. And I thought, you know, it was at least a step. And the expectations around Soroka have been all over the board, all over the chart. I mean, you look at what he was before the injuries and the nearly three-year layoff, and that's what you're expecting him to walk back in and be. That's just, I don't think, a realistic expectation for him. But the velocity's there. The stuff's there. The mechanical changes, I think, have changed the command and have cost him a little bit in the command department. But, you know, Soroka will try to continue this hard work and get himself back into this picture as soon as he can. But I think that it lets you know that the Braves are casting a net for some pitching help right now. And Yanni Chirinos is a guy that they're looking at. He's 4-4 four and four on the year, a 402 ERA with Tampa Bay, 15 games, four of those starts. But he was also, as you know, the Rays like to use that opener. So Chirinos would come in and be kind of the bulk guy. And so he would throw anywhere between three and five innings as part of that opener philosophy that Tampa Bay likes so much. 62 and two-thirds innings, 58 hits, 10 of those homers, 20 walks, only 31 strikeouts. That's less than a 12% K rate. That's a little bit alarming. And then you look at the last five or six outings for Chirinos, and he has been lit up like a Christmas tree. So it's kind of understandable that the Rays may just not have a spot for him right now. The Braves got to look at him right before the All-Star break in a scoreless inning he tossed against them. So maybe... That was an audition, if you will, to jump into the Braves pitching mix. But this is a depth move. This is not the answer from uh, high above of what the Braves need to help fortify this pitching staff, not only for the rest of the regular season, but, of course, for what you're going to be looking to do in October. There need to be some more moves. 
for the Braves, I think, to really feel like they are where they want to be. But this is not a question of going out and acquiring three or four relievers. I mean, you are, obviously, with A.J. Minter going out in this rehab assignment, looking forward to having him back. They are hoping, and it sounds like there's some progress on the Dylan Lee front, Maybe he's going to go out on a rehab assignment soon. Then all of a sudden you've got the two lefties that you really wanted to have all season long that haven't been available to you for a while in the case of Lee and that you lost at a very inopportune time in terms of A.J. Minter. Get them back in your bullpen mix. Then maybe you're only looking for an arm or two to help you out. But as we've seen, you can run through that depth very quickly. So if you have to make moves before the trade deadline or Alex Antopoulos or any general manager, there's no more waiver trade period. you got to get all your work done before August the 1st. So we'll see how many relievers they're looking to pick up over the course of the trade deadline. Now, I put out a poll on Twitter, which uh, last I checked, Twitter is still running as of Sunday evening, heading on 7 o'clock. How many trades do you think that the Braves will make by the trade deadline on August the 1st? I set the over-under for that at 2.5, and, and I added a couple of responses to it just to get a little bit more detailed. Obviously, number one option is three or more. Nearly 22% responded three or more. Under. So just taking two or less, just non-specifically, nearly 65%. But a couple of trades, and this was pointed out by Peter Moreland. I talked about this at the top of the show. One trade could bring multiple pieces in. So it's not just all about, well, every time we get one player, that's one more trade. I'm just kind of curious as to how many deals you think Alex Anthopoulos can pull off at the same time. How many plates can he keep spinning and for how long? Uh, The other options were only one, which uh, about 11% of you clicked yes on that one or clicked that as your response, and then no trades, just over 3% of respondents. And we're at about 3,000 votes here with a day left. I wanted this to kind of run for a while so that people could come to it at whatever point the Braves are. I mean, they're going into an off day, so I figured let's let it run for a while. But in the midst of putting this up, the Braves did make a waiver claim in Chirinos, which I don't count as one of the trades. And somebody did ask me that earlier. This is just a depth move, and it's a waiver claim. But I am fascinated to see you know, how many different possibilities there are when clubs truly decide that they're going to sell. Now, one that I talked about, and I wrote an article about this for the Marietta Daily Journal this past week. There's a link out on Twitter for you there as well. But if you're looking for bullpen pieces, there are some obvious sellers, and there are some arms that are going to be pure rentals, like a Jordan Hicks from the St. Louis Cardinals, some guys that might cost you a little bit more, like a David Bednar, you know, all-star closer for the Pittsburgh Pirates. And then you could kind of look at the Kansas City Royals, which I think might make a lot of sense, but I'm sure I'm not the only one thinking it. Because I like Carlos Hernandez, who's not the closer up there. You know, that's Scott Barlow. But maybe Barlow's available as well. Maybe that's one of those two-for-one kind of deals. If you can get in a couple of good relievers. And it's not about trading for a closer to replace Rysel Iglesias, but you better have a backup plan. I think we've learned that this year. Again, this goes back to the depth. And that's where I think the Braves, and why I think the Braves, will be making multiple different trades to address this. But could they be addressing the starting rotation becomes a, a really fascinating question, particularly with Soroka being optioned again. And I know Max Fried is close, but I was kind of thinking, all right, if you got Spencer Strider, Bryce Elder gets right, and you've got Charlie Morton, and you can have Michael Soroka maybe as your five and you get Freed back until Kyle Wright could come back sometime in maybe early September, you feel pretty good about that rotation. But for the second time this year, I look at the optioning of Michael Soroka and I say, well, I'm not sure I completely understand it. Sometimes having options just makes you the odd man out when a move is made, and it may be as simple as that, and we could just leave it there. But it just seemed like you know, giving Soroka the opportunity to continue to make these starts at the big league level might be more useful than continuing down at the minor league spot. But what can we expect, expect at the trade deadline from Alex Antopoulos is going to be a great question. And for a lot of you, just about 85% of you, at least two or so trades.
maybe more. We'll find out exactly how many. But the farm system has also been helpful for the Braves, and you know it may be running dry at this point as well. I mean, Ben Heller was picked up from the Rays. He was another guy that was just kind of cast off from that club, much like Torinos has just been. But the Rays, they know a little bit about you know utilizing pitchers. But even they run into the same roster crunches, so they might have liked to have you know hidden some of these guys down in AAA, but they had burned through the options because you only get five of those in total over the course of a season, and now Chirinos can only be optioned back with his permission. So he's looking for a big league spot, and the Braves are going to give him that, it would appear, to be in the starting rotation, at least for the short term. But one guy that we saw who popped up to kind of help out this rotation in the Milwaukee series was Alan Winans. And this is a fun story, and we get a few of these throughout the course of the year. And we talked about Forrest Wall, who, by the way, just kind of showed you all that speed on Saturday as well when he came in and stole two bases. I mean, just back-to-back pitches, this guy's a third. That's the kind of weapon that I think the Braves have envisioned to help them out in October as they look to put together a roster that has all kinds of different weapons. But going back to Winans, a fun story for a minor league Rule 5 pick, not even the major league Rule 5 pick. They plucked him out of the Mets organization after the 2021 season, and all he's done is pitch well. And he was pitching extremely well in Gwinnett. And the first couple of times through the order against Milwaukee, I thought he looked pretty good. But that second time through, as he got to that bottom of that order, he started to run into a little bit of trouble. So I can understand why the Braves and Brian Snitker didn't want to tempt fate and push him through the rest of that fifth inning. But he did enough to make me believe that maybe we get another Allen Winan start at some point. But it all could be connected to the trade deadline because if they make a move for another starter, well, this was a spot start, which is, I think, the expectation of that to begin with. But... The Braves, in optioning Winans back on Sunday, brought up Dave Bell Hernandez. And this is a name for the Braves prospects, folks, that have kind of been watching the minor leagues very closely to see kind of some diamonds in the rough or some guys who could really make a difference in the Braves' bullpen. He was on the radar prior to Tommy John surgery, which cost him the 2022 season. He came back, started at Rome, kind of got knocked around in a couple of appearances. But, you know, it's not about the numbers necessarily as much as it's about being healthy. He bumped up to Mississippi. They started pitching lights out, and then they sent him to AAA Gwinnett, and he did the same. In fact, he struck out seven of the nine hitters that he faced at AAA in two quick appearances, and now he's up here to help out the Braves. 26 years old is Hernandez, real lively fastball, 96, 97 miles an hour, really good slider as well. This is just somebody that could help out, whether it's the short term, the long term. The Braves, they're not necessarily hanging a help-wanted sign outside Truist Park as far as the bullpen's concerned, but they're an injury or two away from being dangerously low on pitching depth, so... It's not altogether surprising to see Hernandez get this opportunity to jump in and help out the Braves in the lead-up to the trade deadline. So we'll see if Hernandez gets a long-term shot or not, but opposing hitters against Hernandez this year in the minors, batting 122 with a 411 OPS in the 22 innings, only four hits in the final, 56 at-bats against him in the minors before he made the jump, and he gave up one hit and struck out the side in a scoreless inning for the Braves in his Major League debut on Sunday. So I am intrigued by this day's Bell Hernandez. We'll see what he can do. And again, I mentioned with Max Freed, this is where all eyes are as far as minor leagues are concerned at this moment. He's three starts in as Freed. He'll make one more start this week. That's going to happen on Wednesday. But the Braves are eagerly awaiting the return of Max Freed because I think that is the big piece, the big domino that has to fall to get this staff back to the optimum level. And then whatever you can add on the trade deadline and get from another club and add to this team, Alex Antopoulos will be looking to do all of that as well. But that's what's going on with the Atlanta Braves this week. As we look ahead, a Monday off day, then it's two games in Boston against the Red Sox. 7-10 first pitch for both of those. Off day on Thursday, then a three-game set against the Milwaukee Brewers will be coming your way next weekend. We'll be talking about all of that, of course, 
throughout the week here on 92.9 The Game. You can catch me on my various call-ins across uh, all of the different shows here. So look forward to chatting about all of that. And, of course, we'll be back with another episode of From the Diamond very soon as well. My thanks again to Ron Gant for joining me to talk about his amazing press box fire bobblehead. And, of course, Fred McGriff going into the Hall of Fame. And Victor Rojas, who stopped in to talk about the Shohei Otani trade rumors that may never end or August 1st. They may just continue all the way down to 6 p.m. We'll find out. Thanks to Dom for keeping the show going here. Appreciate your help as always. And thank you guys out there for listening to From the Diamond and making it part of your baseball regimen each and every week. Until next time, I'm Grant McCauley. We will catch you next week here on the show. This is Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.